0: Today we're reading the Book of Colossians. This is the new King James Version of the podcast. The King James Version is also available. Well, there are four chapters in the Book of Colossians, but first of all, let's look and see what we need to know about the church at Colossae. It was in, of course, Asia Minor, uh, just to the southeast of Laodicea. There's a map there on the written notes of BibleTrack.org that shows the location of Colossae. According to the Expositors Bible Commentary, and I quote, Colossae was a small town situated on the south bank of the Lycus River in the interior of the Roman province of Asia, an area included in modern Turkey. Located about 100 miles east of Ephesus, its nearest neighbors were Laodicea, 10 miles away, and Hierapolis, 13 miles away. Both of these cities, the more important of which was Laodicea, are named in the epistle as having communities of believers. Colossi and Laodicea were probably evangelized during the time of Paul's extended ministry in Ephesus, and that's according to Acts chapter 19, verse 10, and that ends the quote. Colossians was written by Paul from prison around 62 AD. We also see mention of a man named Epaphras in Colossians 1, 7 and 4:12. He apparently was with Paul in Rome when he wrote this book is also mentioned in the epistle to Philemon in Philemon, verse 23, where he's called by Paul his fellow prisoner. You'll notice in verse 1 that Timothy was there as well. We have a very heavy greeting at the beginning of Colossians in the first 14 verses, and I read verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God." Strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Well, here we see Paul's standard greeting in verses 1-4. through He declares his apostleship in verse 1, as he almost always does at the beginning of his letters, except to the Philippians. When Paul speaks of being an apostle, he's claiming that twelfth spot vacated by Judas Iscariot. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he gives a complete defense of his apostleship. Paul consistently used the word saints in verse 2. He uses that word to describe those who have trusted Christ as Savior. The Greek word used there is actually an adjective, it's hagias, and it means holy or set apart. But when used alone, it's rendered a noun. In other words, those who have been set apart for heaven, having trusted Christ as their personal Savior, those are the people who are called saints or set-apart ones. The subject matter Paul deals with in Colossians specifically attacks the tenets of a first-century heresy known as Gnosticism. These Gnostic teachers were perverters of established Christian doctrine by, well, they mixed a little truth with a little bit of Oriental mysticism, then a little bit of Judaism. After his greeting in verses 1 through 4, verses 5 through 14 are stocked with doctrine and expectations. Here, he deals with salvation, heaven, Holy Spirit guidance, godly Christian living, and deliverance from evil, just to name a few. Now, pay particular attention to verse 5. He says, Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. The Greek word for hope there in every occurrence in the New Testament, by the way, in the King James Version and the New King James Version, is elpis. And that's the noun form. The verb form is elpizo, And um, both Pizzo and the noun elpis are used... Consistently for hope in the New Testament. Now, the Greek definition for El Peace is a little different in expression from our English word hope. While we use the word hope to sometimes express a good bit of uncertainty about a future event, El Peace is a Greek expression meaning confident expectation with no uncertainty with regard to the future event. Now, if you read verse 5 again, substituting confident expectation for hope. Now, you get a little different perspective than you may have gotten when you first read it. Some of the cults try to maintain that the Bible nowhere says that believers go to heaven when they die. Well, verse 5 says they do. Incidentally, 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 also plainly say that a believer does go to heaven, in fact, at death. You'll notice in verses 4 through 8 that Paul seems pleased with the spiritual health of the church there at Colossae report he had received regarding them from Epaphras in verses 7 and 8. He comments in verses 5 and 6 regarding the presence and influence of the word of the truth of the gospel, to the extent that it has, at this point, permeated the entire world. Now, the question arises from Paul's declaration in verse 6, this, does that mean that the Roman Empire or the whole face of the globe? In other words, we're talking about just the Roman Empire, we're talking about everywhere around the world, even the parts that Paul didn't even know about the greek word used for world here is cosmos that word is used in a number of contexts from simply referring to the world order of things to a reference to the globe for example jesus said in john 15:18 if the world hates you you know that it hated me before it hated you was jesus talking about the whole globe there when john used the greek word cosmos to frame his comments well no John there is conveying that Jesus is talking about the world order. So, you see, one must be careful not to read more into the usage of a word than was intended by the writer. It seems likely that Paul is referring to the extent that the word of truth of the gospel has reached every region of the Roman Empire, a comment that he reinforces in verse 23. We'll look at that in a few moments. Notice the emphasis on godly Christian living in Paul's prayer for them, beginning in verse 9. That prayer goes down at least through verse 12, but Paul segues into some doctrinal issues regarding Christ in the process of detailing his prayer for them. Now, let's take a look at some of the components of this prayer that Paul lifts up to God for these Colossians. He says that they might be, first of all, filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. In other words, he's praying for them for spiritual insight and that they would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. In other words, he's talking about a God-honoring lifestyle. Then he says, being fruitful in every good work, to see an impact from their service for God. Then he says, increasing in the knowledge of God. He's talking about experiencing an increase in understanding the very nature of God. Then he says, strengthen with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Now, the same Greek word is used for the verb strengthened, and it's dunamao, and the noun might is dunamis. These two words are frequently used in the New Testament. The general word for strength, power, might at the hand of God or of men. Our English word dynamite is derived from the very same Greek word. On the other hand, the power of this verse comes from the Greek word kratos, this word is used only 12 times in the New Testament and always refers only to God's power, never a reference to man's abilities. Patience and long-suffering are two different concepts in this verse. The Greek word for patience, hupomene, that means to bear up under difficult circumstances, while the Greek word for long-suffering, which is macrothemia, it means to calmly suffer long without irritation in the midst of difficult circumstances. Both are easy when we are strengthened by God. Then we see Paul saying, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. The Greek term for has qualified us in that verse is hikanao, and it means has made us able. These saints are believers, and all believers are equal heirs with Jesus Christ, and that's also according to Romans chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. So here's where Paul's prayer does the doctrinal segue that I mentioned a few moments ago. It's between verses 12 and 13. Speaking of God in verse 12, here's what he does. Verse 13, it says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Now, let's not sugarcoat the life of unregenerate people. They need to be delivered from the power of darkness and moved into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And what makes that move possible? Well, there's your answer in verse 14. It says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption from the power of darkness is made possible through the blood, meaning the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, through the blood, resulting in the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, redemption or the forgiveness of sins is made possible only because Jesus cleansed us through his sacrificial blood. So who exactly is Christ? Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 24 is our next reading. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, of the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, for the sake of his body, which is the church." Well, Paul uses these verses to firmly establish the deity and preeminence of Christ. These nine verses solidly identify Christ as God among us, and without question the head of each believer and of the church. Notice how plainly Paul expresses the exact identity of Jesus Christ in these verses. In verse 15, he says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Also in verse 15, he's the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, by him were all things created. Verse 17, he is before all things. And also in verse 17, in him all things consist. In verse 18, three statements, four statements. He is the head of the body, who, by the way, Jesus, is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. All in verse 18. And then finally, in verse 19, in him all the fullness should dwell. So for those Gnostic teachers who sought to weaken the authority of Jesus, Paul plainly establishes that Jesus is God in the flesh. Incidentally, liberal scholars today still question the deity of our Savior. There's a word here that's only used by Paul himself, and is only twice, and that word is apokateloso for reconciled, translated reconcile in English, In verse 20, twice here, verses 20 and 21, as a matter of fact, and again in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, the word holds the connotation of patching up a previous rift in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, between Jews and Gentiles, and here in verses 20 and 21, the rift, we see that man left God, but the sacrifice of Christ on the cross made it possible for man to be reconciled back to God. Paul uses the same word without the apa, the A-P-O, if you're looking at the English, making it just katalasso. He uses that same word in Romans 5.10, 1 Corinthians 7.11, and 2 Corinthians 5.18-20. through 20, A word which has the same meaning, as a matter of fact, in each context except 1 Corinthians 7.11, It's used to describe the reparation in relations between man and God by Jesus Christ through his sacrificial death because the Colossians, well, and us, before salvation we were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. That's in verse 21. Having already stated the method by which we were reconciled in verse 20, through the blood of his cross, Paul restates it in slightly different words here in verse 22 when he says, In the body of his flesh through death. Verse 22 continues with the goal of this reconciliation, not only redemption, but a lifestyle in this world that reflects that redemption. If you don't understand this concept, then you'll misunderstand verse 23. So let's frame verse 23 by looking at their lifestyle before salvation, which was up in verse 21, when he says of them that they were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. The unregenerate mind fostered wicked works. Therefore, the goal of this reconciliation is to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Now, understand this. We are made righteous before God by trusting Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Paul calls this imputed righteousness in Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, However, in this passage, Paul has made clear with his reference to wicked works that he's talking not about imputed righteousness, but righteous-looking lifestyles, lifestyles that are holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, as I quote. Verse 23 then goes on to explain how that lifestyle is maintained, and he says by continuing, and I quote, "...in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel." In other words, believers need to stay focused on the main thing. Now, let's revisit an issue that we saw up in verse 6 as we look at the remainder of verse 23. He says in verse 23, The gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul didn't use the word world, the Greek word cosmos, here as he did in verse 6 to describe this domain. The three words that are translated to every creature here come from the Greek phrase in passe te ktise. The Greek words en passe are commonly translated in all, while ktise can be translated creature or creation. With the definite article te preceding ktise, it's the phrase in all the creation. Perhaps it lends a clear understanding of what's meant here. Again, as in verse 6, Paul is likely conveying the thoroughness of the gospel penetration throughout the Roman Empire. If Paul were making a prophetic statement that every single person on the face of the globe has heard the gospel, well, one would think that Paul would have offered more explanation regarding this feat to his Colossian recipients. It would not appear that Paul is revealing a mystery here. If he were, I believe he would have said so. In verse 24, Paul says that he rejoices in his sufferings for the Colossians. He expands that to include the body of Christ, which he defines as the church, the ecclesia, the Greek word. The body of Christ is interchangeably referred to in the New Testament as the church. Then Paul describes his ministry in Colossians chapter 1, verses 25 through 29, and I read verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily here Paul discusses his calling from God, what he's preaching and doing among the Gentiles. The Greek word for mystery in verse 26 is the Greek word mysterion. As you can see, mystery is a near transliteration of the Greek word, which literally means that which cannot be known by the natural mind. So what is this mystery message that Paul so diligently preaching to the Gentiles? Well, it's found in verse 27, and here it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That was a foreign concept. It was a mystery to the Old Testament Jews, but was revealed to Paul and shared with us. In a general sense, the word means that which was hidden previously. Notice verse 25. He says, "...of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God." There's that word stewardship. Oikonomia means management. There it is used again, used by Paul to describe his revelation of the gospel of grace, previously a mystery, which has been extended to all believers. He says that in verse 26 when he says, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. He also used the Greek word oikonomia in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 2, but there it's translated dispensation in the New King James Version instead of stewardship. The King James Version translates it dispensation in both instances. In light of his plain speaking on the matter, it's difficult to reject the notion that Paul was clearly dispensational in his view of God's economy through the ages. In verses 27 through 29, Paul commits himself fully to the ministration of the preaching of this dispensational truth when he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul's goal is that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The Greek word for perfect there is teleos, and it means mature. Then we come to Colossians chapter 2, first six verses, where we see that there are a lot of logical but wrong philosophies out there about Christ. Verse 1, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest any one should deceive you with persuasive words, for though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. We see the distress Paul senses in verse 1 regarding the spreading of false teaching well in Colossae as well as other places, including Laodicea. His reference in verse 2 to the knowledge of the mystery of God was defined back in chapter 1, verse 26. In that mystery are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, he says in verse 3. Then comes the treachery. We see it in verse 4. He's been laying the groundwork up to this point for dealing with this treachery, and here it is. Those who would deceive you with persuasive words. After commending their steadfastness and faith in verse 5, he digs right in. The Judaizers and the Gnostics of Paul's day are undoubtedly the target for these remarks, as we'll see in this chapter. Verse 6 is particularly meaningful here when he says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. In other words, you're saved by faith and you're kept by faith. Then in verses 7 through 15 of chapter 2, Paul encourages them to fully embrace their lives in Christ. Verse 7, Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power." In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses." having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against you, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. These heretics, well, then and now, they would allow a level of law-keeping to one's faith, were they allowed to do so, Now, verse 7 says, in essence, hang on to the principles of your faith. Don't allow them to redefine it. I particularly like verse 8. Here's what it says. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. The Greek word for cheat there is sulagageo. It's used only once in the New Testament. In other literature, it's used in the context of the spoil that's taken in battle. In this context, Paul is warning them to protect their minds against becoming the spoil of a non-scriptural philosophy and an empty philosophy or deceptive teachings. That word empty there is the Greek word kenos. The world is saturated with philosophies, well, then and now, and those philosophies attack one's faith in Christ. It's vital that you, as a believer, fully understand your relationship to Christ so that the modern-day philosophers won't be able to make you feel insufficient in your faith for lack of meeting their man-made expectations for you. Verse 9 absolutely sets the record straight that Jesus Christ is fully God in the flesh. Here's what it says, For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, that verse leads me to embrace the scriptural term, Godhead, That's to describe the relationship of Jesus to God and the Holy Spirit rather than the oft-used term trinity. When you use Paul's words to describe it, you're less likely to be misunderstood. Verse 10 goes on to say, and you are complete in him. Well, that's great news, isn't it? However, there were those who did not see that as the complete package. That's also the problem today. Paul then deals with a couple of the unscriptural addenda added to one's faith back then, The first being circumcision. Notice how Paul expresses it in verse 11 when he says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. No physical ritual of circumcision is necessary, as was established at the Jerusalem Council back in Acts chapter 15. Probably need to read about that if you don't understand that fully. Spiritual circumcision consists of trusting Jesus as one Savior. That's all that's necessary. The picture, and it's only a picture, represented by water baptism, is presented in verse 12 with the final result found in verse 13 when it says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. That baptismal picture is beautifully outlined in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Now, verse 14 here in Colossians 2 is very important to understand. It says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. It's clear that Paul's talking about the law of Moses here. What does he mean when he refers to the law of Moses? Well, what exactly is the believer's responsibility regarding the law? This is an important foundational lesson, by the way. Paul declares in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7-11, through and look at my notes on that if you're not clear. He says that the law of Moses was passing away. Those aren't my words, those are Paul's. It's important to understand that this was the mission of Jesus Christ, and we see that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Here's what he said. He said, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, if you're still fuzzy about what's meant here, then look at my notes on the New Testament teaching to believers with regard to the Mosaic Law, an article that I've written entitled The Sabbath Day. And you'll see that uh, when believers talk about, yeah, I keep the Ten Commandments, they don't even try in almost every instance. They don't even try to keep the Sabbath day. Read my article and see if you don't agree with exactly what I'm saying. Now, the precise meaning of verse 15 is disputed among scholars. The foes here are principalities and powers. The Greek words are arche, also translated rulers sometimes, and exosia, also translated authorities. Are these human or are they supernatural foes? Well, it doesn't matter. We're told here that Christ disarmed them and triumphed over them. However, based upon context before and after this verse, I'm inclined to prefer the notion that Jesus Christ, by his death, burial, and resurrection, triumphed over those who would put artificial requirements on spirituality. Those are the people he's warning against in verses 1 through 14, and he continues to do so in verses 16 to 23. Therefore, I'm going with the people in authority here to be the foes of verse 15. Now, what about those rituals and traditions in verses 16 through 23 of chapter 2? And I read verse 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men, These things, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgences of the flesh. Well, the Jews were way into doing, 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 doing. It was what defined an observant Jew. Understandably, they had a difficult time shaking the habit that had characterized their lives. To them, this was the way to honor God. They couldn't abide with the concept that Gentiles could honor God any other way. Therefore, these Judaizers, they would insist that the believing Gentiles comply with their doings. A hybrid religion of Judaism slash Christianity was being taught to these Gentiles, which did no justice to Judaism or Christianity. And Paul warns against this very concept, this hybrid kind of religion. Now, perhaps this is a good time to point out that a hybrid doctrine of Christian living is still being taught today in many fundamental churches carefully selected portions of the Old Testament law. (laughs) that happens to be the ones they like. Those selected portions are extracted and applied as standards of Christian living. The Judaizers of the New Testament did so because they were in a transitional period between law and grace. They were Jews who believed and were still wrestling with the place of the Mosaic law in their Christian lives. I mean, it's the way they were raised. But today, there's really no excuse. Few of us were practicing Orthodox Jews prior to getting saved. This chapter particularly points out that legalism counteracts grace. The law of Moses equals Judaism, and Judaism equals the law of Moses. Paul takes great care in separating the two in his writings to the churches. Today, our law is from within, because we have an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Thus, Romans 8, 2 says it like this. Paul's talking here. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, I literally have God's law written on my heart. That's the law that I am to obey, not the Old Testament law of Moses. It's really a simple concept, but very difficult for many believers to grasp. Now, make no mistake about it. That's exactly what Paul is saying here in verse 16 when he says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. This verse is a direct reference to the unscriptural mandate that believers be required to keep Old Testament law. It's ironic with all the clarity contained in these verses, verses 16 to 23, that many fundamental preachers today still seem confused about law-keeping. They obviously don't keep the mandates of the law of Moses, including the Sabbath day specifications. You really need to read that article on the Sabbath day that I've written, and it's in the uh, topic section of BibleTrack.org. They don't keep the mandates of the law of Moses, including the Sabbath specifications, but they continue to promote it as an addendum to faith in Christ. As a matter of fact, look at the outcome of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And you really need to read that too, the notes on Acts chapter 15. And you'll notice that these Jewish Christian leaders did not set forth a requirement that newly saved Gentiles be subjected to the law of Moses. Yet of the top ten commandments, virtually none of those who preach the importance of keeping the Mosaic law actually take any measures whatsoever to keep commandment number four, which is Sabbath keeping. Under Moses, it was a death sentence to violate that one. No work period on the Sabbath day, which happened to be Saturday, by the way. And if you want to know more, then read my article on the Sabbath day. And here's the fear that many have. They're afraid that without the hammer of the Old Testament Mosaic law, the people will feel they can get away with sin. Every mandate the believer needs concerning life in Christ is to be found in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, let's take a look at chapter 3 and see that Paul's careful to point out the attributes of godly Christian living. So what about those practices of verse 16? What are they good for? Well, Paul says the same thing here in verse 17 that he says in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1. They served as shadows leading up to their fulfillment in Christ. We're not given any details about the heresy being practiced in verse 18. It would appear that Paul is critical of those who have developed a doctrine that believers are not worthy to appeal directly to God and must therefore worship angels instead. That heresy came from his fleshly mind, he says. "To practice such cuts one off from the head, as we see in verse 19. The head of the body of Christ thus missing out on the increase that is from God. Paul then asks this question in verse 20. He says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? He lists a few in verse 21 and categorizes them in verse 22, and he calls them according to the commandments and doctrines of men. It would appear that here we see this hybrid doctrine of the Gnostics with a little bit of law of Moses mixed in. He sums up this ritualistic worship in verse 23 when he says, "...these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh." Notice the appearance of wisdom. It says appearance of not real wisdom, appearance of wisdom. "...the self-imposed religion." That comes from a single Greek word meaning religion thought up by oneself. This addresses the practice of self deprivation in the course of practicing a man made religion, but they look very pious doing so. Now, if you're asking yourself the question where's the deterrent if there's no law of Moses being applied to the lives of believers? Well, there's your answer in chapter 3 where he talks about putting to death, putting off, and putting on. Let's look at these verses, beginning with verse 1. "'If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory.' Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds." And have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do." But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him." Notice how Paul frames this next discussion in verse 1. He says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand. That's a reference to Psalm 110, the right hand of God. That's a natural transition from the erroneous practices that are seen in verses 16 to 23. Immediately we are reminded of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 where he said this, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. It couldn't really be any clearer. The believers should be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God, as we see here in verses 1 through 4. In doing so, our thinking process will be managed according to Philippians chapter 4 verse 8. Now, let's briefly look at Paul's emphasis here in verses 1 through 4. Believers are pictured in verse 1 as having been resurrected in Christ, a picture of our relationship with Christ typified by water baptism, referenced here, as a matter of fact, in chapter 2, verse 12, and fully developed in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Verse 2 emphasizes that believers should set their affections toward eternal rewards. Then, as also pictured in water baptism, Believers are shown to be dead to the world and now in Christ's care in verse three, and looking for the rapture by the way, in verse four, according to first thessalonians four thirteen through eighteen and first corinthians fifteen fifty one through fifty eight where we see the details of the rapture, then we find lists in verses five through fourteen, and you know everybody loves a list, Paul gives us three lists as guides for Christian conduct in this passage he says, therefore. Put to death, in verse 5, put to death your members which are on the earth. These actions, by the way, are mostly of a sexual nature. He describes them as, first of all, fornication, the Greek word pornea. It's a broad term for sexual immorality. Then he says uncleanness. The Greek word akatharsia can refer to physical or moral uncleanness. Then the word passion, the Greek word pathos, it references strong physical desires, particularly of a sexual nature. Then he mentions evil desire. That Greek word is epithemia. When combined with evil, means evil lusts. And then finally he says covetousness, which is idolatry. Wow! The Greek word pleonexia typically equates with greediness. However, only used ten times in the New Testament, context seems to indicate some well, dishonesty or problems with integrity in the process of exercising that greed. Since Paul equates it with idolatry, and you know, God destroyed Israel and Judah for idolatry, then believers' interests are best served by steering away from any covetous activity in their lives. In verse 6, we're told, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. We see Paul deal with this concept exhaustively in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Even among lost people, God has demonstrated that he has no tolerance for depraved conduct. What I'm about to tell you here is fascinating, at least to me. In Leviticus chapter 18, verses 19 through 30, we are told in that passage that the nations which had previously occupied Canaan were vomited out of the land because of these wicked practices and those were primarily with regard to sexual perversion vomited out ooh he refers to their unregenerate lifestyle in this context in verse 7 a reference to their before salvation practices now verses 8 and 9 have a list of things that we are to put off these put off items are words and outward expressions, it would appear that Paul means to differentiate these put-off actions from the put-to-death actions of verse 5. And these are anger. The Greek word here is orge. It means being in a state of anger all the time, really, and that's the thing that characterizes you. That's the emphasis here. Then he used the word wrath, thumos. It's a state of intense anger with the implication of passionate outburst. Then he says malice, kakia, uh, it's a state of wickedness. Uh, kakos means bad or wicked. And uh, blasphemy. Interestingly enough, the Greek word there is blasphemia. And it's speaking evil of one another. Then he says filthy language. That Greek word is ascolagia. And it means I've seen or shameful speech involving culturally disapproved themes. And then last of all, lying. Well, everybody knows what lying is. Those are the things that are to be put off, Paul says. And then in verses 12 through 14, we've got another list, and it's the put on these list. These positive responses come as a result of Holy Spirit leadership. In one's relationship with others, these qualities are those that manifest themselves in believers as they are led by the Holy Spirit. These are similar to the fruit of the Spirit list that we find in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. So first of all, the put on list includes tender mercies. Two Greek words are used here to convey the thought. Splachnon means intense affection and oikthromos means mercy or compassion. Used together, they convey an intense compassion toward others. The next in the list is kindness. comes from the Greek word kestotes and conveys a moral excellence in one's relationship with others. And the next one in this list is humility. That Greek word is tepeinophrosune. It denotes comprehensive humility that characterizes a person. People know you as humble. Then meekness, praetis, encompasses humility along with gentleness. Long-suffering, we've had that word earlier, Macrothemia. Macro means long and themia suffer. means exercising lengthy patience in trying situations. And then bearing one another, anekamai, literally means to put up with one another. That's not always easy unless you're led by the Holy Spirit. Then he says, charizomai, that's the next, forgiving one another. It means actually, charizomai means to freely give, most often in the context of forgiveness. There's more on that teaching of Christian forgiveness if you look at my notes on Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. And then finally, love is in that list. It's the Greek word agape, and that means, by the way, sacrificial love. Paul then adds in verse 15 that believers should let the peace of God rule in your hearts. I'd say that's pretty comprehensive as a list, wouldn't you? As a matter of fact, in essence, it exceeds the mandates of the Old Testament Mosaic Law. And here's the primary reason we should gather as believers, found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. It says, "...let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord." Look here, I I need your fellowship and you need my fellowship. You can't get that from television or radio. Now regarding husbands, wives, children, fathers, and slaves, that's what Paul deals with in Colossians chapter 3 beginning with verse 18 down through chapter 4 verse 1. And those verses give us the introduction to this concept. Verse 18, "'Wives, submit to your own husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men.' knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, these admonitions are similar to those found in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 22, down through chapter 6, verse 9. Believers should be ever conscious of how they relate to others as a matter of testimony. So these relationships are specified as follows. Verse 18, the wives to husbands, where we're told that they are to submit to their husbands. The Greek word there is hupataso and indicates a voluntary subordination. And then wives to husbands in verse 19, the word love there, used as a verb, is agapao, This is the verb form for love. Agape is the noun form. That particular word means sacrifice. I mean, when Paul commands men to love their wives in verse 19, he's commanding them to make sacrifices for their wives. When folks make sacrifices for one another, then a natural affection, a natural love, that is called in Greek, the Greek word philia. That's the result, the natural love. So sacrifice results in natural affection. The ultimate amount of sacrifice is illustrated by Christ's willingness to give his own life for the salvation of believers. Incidentally, that concept rebuilds broken marriages. If a troubled couple will simply return to the practice of sacrificing, the one that characterized those early days of their marriage or courtship, then the natural affection for one another will be rekindled. And then we find the relationship of children to parents in verse 20. And their mandate is to obey in all things. Paul deals with this more exhaustively in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1-4. through 4. That's where he draws from the promise associated with the commandment to be found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, when it says there, "'Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. Children who obey their parents live longer.'" And then the relationship of fathers to children in verse 21 when he says, Do not provoke your children. While Paul does give the same admonition in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4, here in this passage he cites the reason by saying, Lest they become discouraged. Here he encourages parents to exercise a measured response to children's disobedience. And then in verses 22 through 25 we find the relationship of slaves to their masters. And he tells them to heartily obey them. God will punish unjust masters. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And then masters to slaves. That relationship is seen in chapter 4, verse 1, where he tells the masters to treat the slaves justly and equally. Now, slavery during the first century was a legal reality and had been for centuries in the Roman Empire and the empires that preceded it. These slaves under Roman rule were not entire races, but rather certain people from within each race who were in bondage as slaves. So how might one end up being a slave during that era? Well, derived from extra-biblical historical documents, here are a few ways. If you were born to a slave, you were born a slave, and remained such unless your master gave you your freedom. Promise Goody was rampant during that era. It was common that unwanted babies would be left out on the side of the road to suffer death by exposure, especially girls. Slave traders then would harvest these unwanted babies and hire someone to raise them until they could be sold as slaves. Even though most of these babies were unwanted females, they would be raised to become productive in supplying male and female slaves to their owners. It's also true that a debtor could lose his freedom and be forced into slavery as a result. Additionally, sometimes slaves were formerly prisoners of war. Though the uh, first two scenarios probably um, accounted for most of the slaves, either being born to a slave or harvested as a slave when you were left as a baby. Paul here deals with the proper relationship between slaves and their owners. Now, Paul had no power to change laws governing slavery, so he simply dealt in this chapter with how slaves should properly respond to their masters and how masters should relate to their slaves. Now, some have questioned why Paul didn't condemn slavery altogether in this passage. Now, keep in mind two issues at hand. First, when raised as a slave from birth, Roman society would have been economically intolerant of one who had acquired his freedom in most circumstances. This was the lifestyle to which they were accustomed. The security of a benevolent slave owner was preferred by many over freedom. Second of all, Paul's ministry was not one of government reform. Paul's ministry was a ministry of reconciliation to God. Here was a man writing to people from prison. He was enduring his own version of false imprisonment. So understand that these verses represent Paul's instructions to believers who were slaves and to those who owned slaves. Paul also deals with the subject of the proper treatment of slaves in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 5 through 9. Then we see in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, that we are to have a continual consciousness of who we are. Verse 2. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Here, Paul encourages us to continually be in communication with God in prayer and thanksgiving to God. That's in verse 2. The Greek verb for continue there in that verse is proskartereo. It's the same word used in Acts chapter 6 verse 4 with regard to the apostles when they tell the folks in Jerusalem, they say, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Paul uses the same word to describe a believer's proper attitude toward prayer in Romans chapter 12, verse 12, where it's translated in the New King James, rejoicing in hope, patient, and tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Paul cannot say it more simply than he does in 1 Thessalonians 5:17. though. There he simply says, pray without ceasing. Now he lists three action items for these believers. In verses 3 and 4, pray that Paul will have opportunities to share the mystery of Christ to others. You'll recall that Paul described that mystery in chapter 1, verse 27. And in verse 5, he says, Be conscious of testimony and interaction with the lost. He calls them those who are outside. Then he says, Redeeming the time. And he means using those opportunities wisely. And then in verse 6, he encourages them to use gracious speech. And he says it like this seasoned with salt. Salt adds flavor to food. It seems likely he's encouraging believers to witness to the lost with gracious or kind speech that's palatable to the recipient rather than condescending and brash. Interestingly, this is the only New Testament reference to salt with the exception of Jesus' usage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Also, that's Mark 9, 49, and 50, same occasion. And the same occasion, Luke chapter 14, verse 34. In all three usages, Jesus is talking about the taste aspect of salt, not the preservative value of salt. To put it simply, verses 5 and 6 emphasize the importance of continually being conscious of how we are viewed by non-believers. And then we have the final greetings. And that's in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Verse 7, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justus, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God, who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you, and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphos and the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul, remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. Well, these are the final words of greeting to believers that Paul usually includes at the end of his letters. The Tychicus mentioned in verse 7 was one of the disciples that accompanied Paul in a portion of his third missionary journey. He appears in Acts chapter 20 verse 4. The Marcus of verse 10 is likely the John Mark of Acts chapter 12 listed here as a cousin to Barnabas, Paul's one-time fellow traveler in the ministry first seen in Acts chapter 4. We see in verse 14 that Luke is with Paul at the time of this writing. Some think the Laodicean letter of verse 16 is the Ephesian epistle. We are left with the impression that those mentioned through verse 11 are of the circumcision, meaning Jews, while those mentioned from verse 12 on are Gentiles. Now, that suggests that Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, was a Gentile. Demas is mentioned here as present with Paul, but seems to have abandoned Paul when he's mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10. And then we see in verse 18 that Paul used a transcriber for this letter with the exception of that salutation. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online go to www.bibletribe.org Thank you for listening in today.